you've got a Bible, go to Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament, so it's going to be towards the back, so to speak, uh, of your Bible. The uh, third gospel, third book of the New Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 23. And we've been following, as I've said many times now, the story of God. And you may be like, oh my gosh, are you going to repeat it again? Yes. And you know why? Because the more times you hear it, the more times it gets in your head. And then you understand and you begin to get a framework for the Bible. So we started a year and a half ago with the beginning before creation and who God was. And he created the whole world and he made it perfect. And he created Adam. He created Eve in this perfect place. And they had perfect relationship with God as well, but they chose instead uh, to have their own kingdom, their own uh, rule. And God told them when they sin, which is what they did, that death would enter the world, and that's exactly what happened. But God promised Eve that a child from her own body would right the wrong, would heal and restore, would defeat the effects of sin, would, would restore life. Uh, didn't explain all of that in the moment, but basically pointed out that there would be a person that came from her that would make things right. And over the course of your entire Bible, that's what we've been following is looking at and for that person. And your Bible is the story of God. And Adam, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. We talked about that. But the seed continues through another child, Seth. And it goes straight down for his descendants until we come to a time when the world is such an ugly, horrible place that God destroys it with the flood. But he carries the seed through with who? Come on, everybody knows this one. Noah, thank you. Okay, I'm just making sure we're going to do this together, right? Carries it through through Noah and Noah's family. And then on the other side, Noah's family continues to reproduce and grow. And years and generations later, God identifies Abraham as the one who's going to continue to carry this seed. Abraham has Isaac, supernatural act of God. You can read all this. We talked about it all. Isaac has Jacob, another supernatural act of God. We read it. You can go back and look at it yourself. And Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, correct? And Israel, I said correct. See that? That's something else. I'll tell you all another time. So he has, he has, uh, Israel has 12 children. Those 12 children all have families. Those families all grow. They become tribes, more or less, within the greater family. And before long, that has become a huge family that becomes a nation of people known as Israel, but they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up who? To go get them out of Egypt. Moses, yep, y'all got to be shy, come on. Moses, right? And Moses goes and leads the people out of Egypt, brings them back to this land that God promised for them. But because of their lack of faith, instead they spend 40 years in the wilderness. But God also gives them something very special during that time. He gives them his word. He gives them uh, the first five books of the Bible for sure. But he gives them his word. And then teaches them who he is and then leads them back in. Not through Moses, but through Joshua. And they come into the land and now they're in this place that God had promised them. They have this kind of relationship a bit restored, but we're still looking for this one person. And instead of them being faithful this time, they are for a while, but then they start to rebel. And then they repent and then they rebel and then they repent. And God raises up leaders called judges that kind of guide them through all that. Uh, But ultimately they want a king because everybody else has got a king. Did they have a king? 
Yes, God was their king, right? But they wanted a king like everybody else. God gives them a king and then another king and then another king. But by the third king of Israel, they have now already gotten so rotten and terrible that they are split into a civil war. Uh, and then divided ten, ten kingdoms in the or ten tribes in the north and two in the south, and ultimately God brings a nation in 722 Assyria that destroys the northern half of them and conquers and spreads them out and scatters them everywhere, leaving the bottom two where Jerusalem is. But eventually they rebel as well to the point that God's done with them. And in 586 BC, God brings Babylon and Babylon drags them off into slavery for 70 years. 70 years pass. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, we talked about all those guys. And then after 70 years, God returns those people back to the south, back to the south, back to, to do, back to Jerusalem and all of that. And we're still looking for this seed, this seed of Eve. And when they come back, they go right back to what they were doing. They start out good, but like always, they turn again. And so by Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God goes silent. For 400 years, he says nothing. And then suddenly there's a star in the sky in Bethlehem. Something incredible and unique is happening. A woman named Mary has a child, though she hasn't been with a man. And something miraculous is occurring, and we've talked about it all, and you know the story. The, the seed, the promise, the son is here. The one who we've been reading all these books and following the story of God for is here. And now we've been looking at his life. And what you would expect is that he takes over. Like everything is he rules the world now because that's what we've been kind of looking for. But he, he wasn't coming to rule the world he was come at that moment he was coming to fulfill the promise made to eve to fix the the sin and death that they had brought into the world so that brings us to the cross which is where we were last week this seed jesus finds himself opposed and embraced at the same time some love him and embrace him as and become disciples some are curious who he is and then some can't stand him and ultimately the powers that be lead him to a cross. And last week we talked about killing God. Who killed God? He did. Right? We talked about it last week. He did. It was his act. Nobody put him on the cross. He put himself on the cross in obedience to the Father. All right? But he did it, yes, for us. So here we go. Today, God among thieves. Uh, it was already talked about, and uh, Larissa read it for us, did a great job, it was awesome, but uh, God Among Thieves. I've shared this story a few times, and, and I won't go back into it again, and I'm sure you all have heard me talk about it once or twice before. But I remember being in a prison, doing ministry in a prison, and hearing a, uh, or getting ready to teach this Bible study in this very small room and this big huge man stood up covered in tattoos all over his face and neck and everything and just very aggressively jumped up and freaked me out raised his hand and said I have a question I haven't said anything yet said I have a question I was like okay he said how much does forgiveness cost to this day that's the greatest question I've ever heard and I've used it in sermons before and stuff but that question hits a little different for an inmate why? 
I mean, we don't ask that question a lot. But in a prison, that question means a lot. Reality is we're all inmates. I mean, whether you know it or not, it's a reality. We're all criminals. We have all sinned. We've, we've all broken, we, we've all committed crimes against the kingdom of God. All of us have. That's what it means to sin. We've committed crimes against the kingdom of God. Yet Jesus, the king of that kingdom, became a criminal, was crucified alongside criminals, and bore the crimes of this criminal. You know, and you, but these two criminals on either side of them are who we're going to talk about today. They had real different thoughts about who he was. And just like them, the most important question you're ever going to answer in your life is who's the guy on the middle cross? Which, by the way, Alistair Begg, I don't know if you know who he is. He's got a great sermon thing, little like five-minute thing that went viral. You can look it up. It's called the man on the middle cross. You should look it up. It's awesome. Anyway. And here's your point, and we're going to jump in right here. But here's your point. You got it on your paper if you grabbed one. It's the same one as last week, intentionally, because it's the same truth. And again, this is not Scripture. This is just a light post as we walk through this. Jesus' death on the cross shows how far God will go to save us and reminds us how far we are from saving ourselves. I mean, that's something powerful to remember. Same thing as last week. So look at verse... Well, this will be up here first. I'm going to give you what Matthew launched into this because the way Matthew said it. Matthew 27, 38 says, There are two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. So it's fulfilling Scripture. Isaiah 53, we talked about it last week. Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So he's got one on his right, one on his left. He's right there among them, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So here's the picture. He's there. He's on the on one side is a thief. On another side is a thief, robber, criminal. And he's in the middle on the cross, numbered with them. He's one just like the rest, at least. That's what Scripture says. Look at verse 39 of Luke 23, and we'll do this. One of the criminals who was hanged, Railed, that word railed means a malicious attack on your character. On your character, like on who you are. In fact, it's the Greek word blasphemeo. What does that sound like? Blasphemy is where we get that word. So it's that idea. He's not necessarily attacking his godness, but he's attacking his character. You're not who you say you are. You're, you're not who you claim to be. And remember, this guy's nailed right beside him. And he says, are you not the Christ? Christ means Messiah. Are you not the Messiah? Well, save yourself. Dot, dot, dot. And us. You know what I mean? Or save me. Ultimately, is all he really cares about, right? The crowds are safely standing there. Nobody's nailed in the crowd. Nobody's being beaten in the crowd. They're all standing there watching, and they're all... Cussing this dude and screaming at this dude and spitting at this dude and mocking this dude. But even this dude who is nailed on a cross, suffering and dying, facing imminent death. He will never come back from this. He is most certainly going to die. And he's dying bad. And even in that moment, he's mocking him too. Saying the same thing. What's the point? The point is this. Your conditions are never going to convince you to believe. I'm just telling you, your conditions are never going to convince you to believe. If you think 
well, when I'm on my deathbed, when I face death, I'll surely, you know, I'll believe then. Or if you think when it gets too hard or too tough, or if I'm suffering, or if it gets bad enough, or if I need a miracle, whatever it is, then I'll believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. Even this guy hanging on the cross, nailed, facing absolute death, is still mocking Jesus to his face. You know, I had a roommate uh, back when I used to party all the time. Both of us were not living godly lives whatsoever, doing drugs, partying, all that stuff on the regular. And then ultimately, I got we, we moved on with our lives, and I became a believer, uh, focused solely on the Lord and, and turned my, my life that direction. And I met back up with this dude because he wanted to talk about it. Like, what are you doing? Like, what happened? Because he's kind of assuming I just got weird religious, you know. And uh, we talked about it. Met in a bar and talked about it while he drank. And he admitted that Jesus did some amazing, incredible things. He said he believed that. Um, But what his problem was is Jesus, I swear to what he said, Jesus never made a limb grow back on something, like an amputee, like somebody lost a limb. Jesus never made a limb grow back. And that's why he couldn't believe. Because if he was a creator... Of all things, why could he never do that? And I'm like so stunned by that, I don't even have words. Like I'm sitting here for a minute thinking, oh, that is interesting. He never did do that. And I'm like, well, what what am I thinking? Like who cares? He raised the dead. (laughs) You can have your hand back, bro. The man raised the dead. You know what I'm saying? But that's the point. What he does, Jesus does, is never going to convince you to believe. It's who he is, and that's it. These criminals here, this one in particular, his demand is also at the core of the prosperity gospel, if you know what that is. The name it and claim it thing. It's the same idea. Are you not the great physician? Heal me. I shouldn't be sick. You're the great physician, right? Or, or don't you own the cattle on a thousand hills? Make me rich. And make yourself rich, too. Go ahead and throw some in for you, too, God, while you're at it. You know what I mean? Make, give me wealth. We've we got to learn, guys, that God's got a plan. All right? He's got a plan. And suffering may be part of it. And death, too. And before you say, no way. Well, guess who we're talking about here? This whole plan I just went back over with you guys from the beginning. Put God himself into immense suffering and a cross and death. If he can put his son through that, if Jesus himself can suffer and die as part of God's plan, why should we be shocked it might be part of ours? I don't want it. I'm not trying to say it should be something to look forward to. I'm not saying all that, but I'm just saying it could be part of his plan. And like this criminal that we're looking at here, too often people turn their face towards Jesus only when they're suffering. My head screwed up, uh, my, my life's screwed up, I got problems, things are tough, things are rough, things are confusing, and they just really want relief. That's really all it is, but their heart's selfish and antagonistic towards God, really. They got down to the bottom of it, but miracles are never going to provide faith. They're never going to do it. They only show what he can do. They never show you who he is. That's something else. 
And I know that because if you read the Gospels like we have, you constantly see them continually asking for another miracle. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Raise Lazarus from the dead. We talked about it. And what did they decide to do in response? Kill Lazarus. Still blows my mind, right? On the other hand, some, the few, the Bible says, rather than seek relief, they realize they have no right to demand it. Rather than seek relief, they realize they have no right to demand it. And rather than challenge Jesus, they just look for his mercy. And, and that's, that's what we got right here. Look at verse 40. The other one rebuked the first one saying, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, that sentence of condemnation is one word. It's basically what happens when the jury comes back and tells the judge you're guilty, guilty, unanimous decision, guilty. And then the judge says, here's what's going to happen. And that's what he's saying. We are all under that same sentence from the judge. Maybe this dude heard him say, forgive them. But they don't know what they do. And it rocked him. I don't know what made this guy's eyes open. But something opened this guy's eyes. And he asked an amazing question. Do you not fear God? Is he implying something about Jesus here? Is he saying Jesus is God? Do you not fear God the way you're talking to him? You know, probably not. It's probably more like that. You're about to meet your maker. Doesn't that freak you out a little bit? It's probably that kind of talk. But still, why is he saying it in defense of Jesus? Like, that's kind of interesting. At the very least, there's some sense of responsibility before God connected to this person of Jesus. And why fear? We have, as Christians, dumbed this word down to just be respect. Like, it just means respect. It shouldn't actually mean fear. But in the Hebrew culture in which the book is written, fear meant, guess what? Fear. You know, that's what it means. Psalm 33, you can just note these. Psalm 33, 8 through 9 says this. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Why? Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. So he's uniting fear and awe because, he says, for God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. If you just read those words, okay, cool. But if you stop long enough to think about it, it'll either freak you out or it'll hurt your head. Go look at some NASA images sometime. Know what I mean? And think about that. He spoke and all of that happened. Or else you don't believe that to be true. If you believe that to be true... That's either going to hurt your head a little bit or the thought of facing that person is a little bit frightening. Even if you know he loves you. You know, Romans fourteen ten says, For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11 says, For it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. Now, we love to throw that one out at atheists and the devil. But that means you too. And maybe you're good with that, and you should be, and I am. Man, I love them. I'm, I'm gold with that. But just think about it a minute now. And then he says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God, which means you're responsible for what you've done with this body he gave you. And I don't care how you feel about it. If you pause a minute and think, 
If I were to tell you, and I knew it for a fact, within four seconds you're going to stand in front of the creator of the entire universe, that at least ought to make your heart start to beat a little faster. Even if you know who he is. Even if you know your salvation is secure. It still should move you in some sense. Why? Because this same God examines your heart. You don't get to hide it from him. That's what it feels like to be naked in the garden. Like you're fully exposed. First Samuel 16 says... Uh, verse 7 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That sounds like a sweet little fun verse to memorize. But what does that mean? Dude, Trey, Logan, you know, Larissa, all of us, Dave, like that means he can see in there, bro. Like you got nothing to hide and nowhere to hide it. Hebrews 4.12, he discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So not only does he know what's in your heart, he knows what you're planning to do before you do it. He knows what you intend to do before it happens. He says, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, again, to whom we must give an account. This dude on this cross knows what's in his heart. This dude on this cross knows what God's going to see. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fallen short. He knows it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death and he is dying. To prove that he's guilty. You know what I mean? He doesn't need anybody to tell him. Look at verse 41. And he, he's still talking to this other guy, but Jesus is in the middle. So they're yelling across each other, across Jesus in the middle. He says, we indeed justly, because we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this guy's done nothing wrong. You know, recognizing your sin means you know you deserve death. It's not just saying, I know I messed up. Is saying, I deserve death. That's what he's saying. We're receiving what we're due for our deeds. We deserve to die. And he's also saying that Jesus is innocent. Look what he said. The man's done nothing wrong. At least regarding the sin, the crime that he's being blamed for, he's done nothing wrong. What's the crime he's being blamed for? Rome's crime is he's king. Because remember, they got the sign over and it says king of the Jews or whatever. That's Rome's crime. The Jews' crime is blasphemy. You're calling yourself God. But the true crime is Aaron's sin and Dave's sin. You know what I'm saying? And your sin. That's the crime. That's the crime. Look at verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, just the amount of things that this thug is saying in this one statement is unreal. And how simply he's saying, look, the simplicity of what he's saying, which this is mind blowing. I had to go back and double check this because I was like, is that right? This is the only time. In the Gospels, where somebody says the name Jesus without a title or some kind of Lord or Messiah or Rabbi or whatever, just simply Jesus. This thief on the cross 
No titles, no anything. Think of how personal and broken this guy is. Jesus. And what he says is awesome. Remember me. Man, you don't get a better, quote, sinner's prayer than that. It's just two words. Jesus, remember me. And again, he's already, look what he's already confessed. His personal fear of God. Don't you fear God? Because I'm a fearing God right now. Like his personal fear of God. He's implied that there's this relationship between Jesus and God. He's confessed that he knows he's a sinner and he's guilty and he knows he deserves to die. And he's also confessed that he knows Jesus is innocent. Look how much this guy has said in these few little words. And he knows that Jesus is innocent. And now... In this one verse, in verse 42, in that one verse, he's recognizing that Jesus is going to live on. You see that? He's recognizing Jesus is eternal because he says, when you come into your king. So he knows that he's going somewhere. This is not going to be Jesus' end. He knows that. He's also recognizing that he's not at his end ultimately either because he's saying, remember me. If he thought he was just going to be obliterated into nothing, that doesn't even make any sense. Why would he care? He's saying, remember me when you come there because I'm not going to be there with you. And he's also saying, I want to be. He's also saying, I want to be there with you. He's recognizing that Jesus is a king. When you come into your kingdom, he's recognizing that Jesus has a kingdom. That he has a place and a people. And he's confessing out loud in front of everybody that Jesus is king. And he's acknowledging all of this. And to be king meant to be Messiah. He's calling them all of those things openly out of his own mouth, out loud. Romans 10, 9, probably the most powerful verse. You want to know how to be saved? You want to know? Here it is. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The long and short of that is, if you know who he is, and you believe who he is. And you can say it. That's the path. That's salvation. Being able to recognize that he is who he is. That he is raised from the dead and he is alive. And you know it in your heart. And you can know it in your heart well enough to say, I believe Jesus is alive. If you can say that, not like some kind of I swear by the Lord of heaven that Jesus. No, you just say it like it's, it's something you want to talk about. I want to tell you Jesus is alive. That's the point. If you can say that, you're saved. And look, we make salvation so complicated. Man. Bracelets and cubes and acronyms and handouts and page flip things. And I, I mean, there's so many gimmicks that. Christians come up with to share the gospel, evangelism classes, training classes on how to think and do it. But look, if, if grace is what saves you, which the Bible says it is, the most effective presentation of the gospel is to point people to the cross. You can tell them your story, but just point them to the cross. And then let grace do the rest. What's the sinner's prayer here? There is no repeat after me. Jesus doesn't say anything to this guy until he's said everything he's already said. This guy just looks at the cross beside, and he's on one. But 
that cross is different. And he knows it. The person on that cross is different. And, and, and he knows it. Spurgeon said, among those lost souls in hell, there's not one that can say, I went to Jesus and he refused me. Not one that can say, I went to Jesus and he said no. And in fact, that's what happens. Look at verse 43. Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And unfortunately, we circle the word paradise and we spend forever trying to figure out whether, where that is or what that is or how heaven's going to be or what the mansion's going to be like. And we miss the reward. The reward is not paradise. What's the reward in that sentence? Huh? With me. With me. You get to be with him. And that's the foolishness when people say there's many ways to heaven. You don't got to get in an argument about that. Say, okay, go have a good time. I want to be with Jesus. It's not, you're not trying to get to heaven. You're trying to get where Jesus is. You want to be with Jesus. It's not about there being many ways to heaven. Fine, then. Go find one of them. I'm not trying to get to my, I don't want a golden palace. Man, I don't care about a stupid golden palace. I don't care about a cabin on a lake. I really don't. I'm not being smart right now or, or, or uber holy. I'm not. I just don't care. I don't care about all those things. I, got, I can get that here. Why would I care about that there? I can get all of that here. I, I want him. Like, I, I don't know what else there is there. Wherever paradise or heaven is, I mean, I can, we can go in here and look at things and try to figure out what it's like and perfect and all, sinless and all that. But I, I don't care. Like, I just want him. And I'm not trying to say that to sound holy. I'm just saying it's true. And that's what this, that's the reward. And, and look what else he says. There's another key word here. Today. Today. There is no time for this dude to do enough good deeds to get him there. He's still a criminal. He's still, and he's guilty. He said so himself. Whatever his crime is. He's still nailed to the cross, and he's still bleeding out, and he's still suffering, and he's still struggling to breathe, and he's still facing the death that's about to happen that's coming slow and painful and horrible. He's in all of that, and he doesn't have time to go do anything good or bad. Nothing. He doesn't have time to make God proud. He doesn't have time to do anything. Guess what else he doesn't have time to do? And I know this sounds weird because in two weeks we're going to have baptism. But he didn't have time to get baptized. Or sprinkled or any of that. You know what I'm saying? It's not like Jesus spit on him, not to be funny. But I mean, he didn't didn't get sprinkled. He didn't get baptized. He didn't get any of that. He didn't have time to. And we are commanded by Christ to do both. To live a godly life and to be baptized. We're commanded to do both those things by Christ. But this is proof that we do it because we're saved. Not to get saved. Had this man lived, then yes, live a godly life. Get baptized and follow Christ. Yes, because that's what he told us all to do. But that's not what saved him. That's how he's responding to being saved. This is the moment where he's getting saved. It's his confession. It's his recognition that you are God and I'm not. It's his recognition that I'm a sinner and I deserve to die on this cross, but you don't. You're innocent. You should be free. You're, you're the king. And I can't get to your kingdom without you. I don't even care. I just want you. Remember me. 
Like that is what brings salvation. The other stuff is just you wanting the world to know that I'm following him. That's it. So what happens next? Let's wrap it up real quick. What happens next? Look back at your Bible. And we'll set up next we'll set up next week. What happens next? Look at verse forty four. We'll just read a little bit here. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness of so three o'clock, darkness over the whole land or noon until the ninth hour, which would be three o'clock, while the sun's light failed. So there's total darkness. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, this is kind of instantaneous, because if you look at the other Gospels, it happens at the same moment. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I love that. It didn't say he died. It doesn't say he was gone. It says he breathed his last. It was his decision to take his last, to push out his last breath then. He was ready to do it. He breathed his last breath on his own, and then he was gone. Now... When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And Matthew says multiple people said that, not just the one. Many people saw this moment and saw that. So imagine it, this moment. Choirs are singing. I don't care where you are in Jerusalem, in in the walls or out of the walls, you can hear the choirs singing, the people shouting and yelling, because it's Passover, remember? And the lambs have been brought to the temple. The temple doors are wide open, and there's just massive celebration going on. It's the biggest party of the year for the Jews. It's the most important day on their calendar. They're all celebrating everything. And the high priest is taking the lamb, the Passover lamb, the one that is most important, is chosen to represent the people and, and the blood of this lamb to go gain mercy from God like he does every year, one time a year, alone and only this man. He's going to go behind curtains, almost like odd that we left these curtains shut because it's like that idea, these dark, dark curtains that keep all light out because on the other side is the presence of God, is the ark, and that's where mercy from God is going to be found or judgment from God is going to be found. And so this one man carrying this blood is heading towards that, Curtain in order to slide through it and hope he's not struck down himself for not being pure enough in order to pour that blood onto the ark in the hopes that God will receive it and grant mercy on his people again for another year. And the crowds are all cheering and waiting in anticipation as this moment comes. And as the guy approaches, this curtain tears from the top straight down. As Jesus dies. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you, but you gotta understand, the Bible tells you about this curtain. It was designed by God. It was as thick as your hand. Thick as your hand. It was 60 feet high, or long, I'm sorry, and 30 feet wide. 30 feet wide, 60 feet long, and as wide as your hand, and it ripped, not from the bottom up, it ripped from the top down. Like God tore it open. In fact, That's exactly what happened because it pictures the way to God is now open. Jesus was the blood, not this little lamb that you're carrying up there. Jesus was the blood. And when Jesus' blood is spilled, we don't need any more sacrifices. This done. That was it. He brought mercy. He brought grace. He brought peace with God and man that no animal ever could. And we don't have to do it every year anymore. Hebrews says so. And that thing was ripped in half to expose that you you can go now trey you can go you can go you can go 
anybody can go to his presence now and find mercy. Because it's torn. It said there were walls cracking, rocks splitting. Uh, Look at verse 50 of Luke 23. We're almost done. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a a member of the council, which this is the Jewish religious leaders. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus. He didn't, but he, he stood against them. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew says this guy was a disciple of Jesus. Mark says he was a respected member of the council. John says he came secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. So that kind of sets up who this guy was. But he went to Pilate, the Roman governor who put Jesus on the cross here, and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate's kind of freaked out about it, being that Jesus is already dead, but says, okay, verse 53. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in the tomb cut in stone. Or in the rock, others say. So it's not, it's a cut tomb. It's not a cave. So it is, it is, looks like a cave, but it's cut. So it means somebody found a wall and cut this uh, tomb in there. And it says where no one was yet laid. So nobody had been in there yet. John says Nicodemus helped with it. He was another Pharisee. Nicodemus is the one in John chapter 3 that came and asked um, about being born again. Jesus told him about being born again. That's Nicodemus. So now we know even though he's a Pharisee, he's there. So before we hate on these religious leaders too much, two of them came and got the body of Jesus and took him. Okay? John 19 verse 41, you don't have to turn to it, but it says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of Passover, preparation, all that, for the Sabbath, because it's about to be Sabbath. Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They can't work with a dead body. They can't touch a dead body on the Sabbath. So they pull him down. They take him to the closest. It seems like our, a, a, a weird happenstance, but it's not. They lay him in a tomb close by, and they're going to come back and take care of him later. Because it's it's about to be Sabbath, sundown Friday, sundown Sunday, Saturday, and they can't touch them. So, um, look what it says back in Luke twenty three fifty four. It was a day of preparation for the Sabbath was beginning. The women had come, uh, who had come with them from Galilee, followed and saw where the tomb was, and where they laid his body. And then they returned home and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. I think it's cool it says that, because so did Jesus. We always want to wonder, where did Jesus go? Who cares, man? He took a break. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what he did. You think the Sabbath is uh, misplaced? No. It was perfect. He died exactly at the Sabbath, and then he rested. And then he rested. Uh, Kim Carpenter's here, Corey Carpenter, her husband. Uh, we got to go to... Uh, Israel years ago together, and so it didn't plan it this way, but it's ironic she's here. So I'll share, share with you some pictures of what is believed to be the tomb. You can Google this and see it yourself. Uh, but So here's where they believe the, uh, the hill is where he was crucified, hill of the skull. And if you go on, if you look away from there, there's the city wall, so that makes sense. He would have been outside the city wall, right by a road. There's an old road that goes through. That's the same city wall. Go ahead. And there's a garden there. Uh, I know that it's been 2,000 years, so you really, there's a garden. But the, fo- the point is that the garden, that at that spot, there is a wine press. In the next picture, I think, 
I got in there. Yeah, there's a wine press there that was there. There is a, a cistern. There's other things that would have provided, and there would have been a garden there or some form of it. And so still there's a garden. Right, This is right by that same hill. And then go on. And here you have chiseled into rock underneath a wall so you can see how old it is. There's a, a, a grave. And go ahead. And from that angle, you can see that there is a trough or whatever for a stone to roll in it, which the stone was gone, but that's what that trough was built for, to allow a stone to roll over the front of it. Go ahead. And there's kind of a diagram of what it looks like on the inside. See that number four up there? Next picture. That's that. Right there. So was he that where he was? I don't know. And they're honest enough to say... They don't know either. In fact, on the door of this little makeshift door they made, they have a plaque that says, he's not here, he's risen. Which says the truth. If you get a chance to go see that, you should. It's mind-blowing. But at the same time, he's not there. He's not there. He's alive. And we're going to talk about that next time we come back to this. So, stand up with me, if you don't mind. We're going to bring the folks back up. Um... And do another one. And uh, if you don't mind, like I always ask you, close your eyes with me for a second. Not to hide anything. You know we don't do that. But to uh, just take a minute and think on this. Take a minute and think on this. I just got a real simple question. Who's the guy on the middle cross? Who? Who? Who is he to you? Picture the scene. There's three crosses. There's one on the middle. The Bible tells you his name is Jesus. The Bible tells you he's the son of God. The Bible tells you he's the Messiah. The Bible tells you he's a king. The Bible tells you he's the creator. The Bible tells you that he's innocent. The Bible tells you that he died for you. you believe that? Now ask yourself, which cross are you on? Because you're on one of them. Because we've all sinned and fallen short and the wages of sin is death. So that's all of us. We are all face death. I don't care what you want to say about it. It's a fact. If you think I'm wrong, just don't die. We all face death. Are you going to die nailed to a cross? No, I highly doubt it, but that's not the point. You're going to die, so we're there. Which cross are you on? Who do you say that he is? If you believe he's who he says he is, you need to tell him. And you need to recognize who you are. And however you want to say it. Lord, your word is amazing. Thank you for it. And thank you for the privilege of having it, carrying it, and sharing it with others. Lord, I pray that you would save people. If they haven't given their life to you today, Lord, let it be today. Let them confess it to you today. I don't care how much God talk there is in their mouth. If they haven't recognized who you are, open their eyes today and let them see you. Lord, I pray that you know that we love you and we are so grateful that you climbed on that cross and died for us and that you are not still in that grave because that's the hope we have. I love you, Lord, and I ask you things in Jesus' name. Amen.